Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and as you do, I just want to listen to the pages of Scripture open in our building. It's wonderful. Ephesians chapter 4. The title for today is Unity Amidst Diversity, a Post-Pandemic Reset. This is a special sermon that I've been thinking about for a while And especially this week, it's been drowning me with truth, this passage has. How can we appropriately and wisely and rightly reset our souls to function together in a wise and in a godly way, moving back toward normality? You know, people talk about new normals. That's kind of become one of the catchwords of our, of our day. We're looking for a new normal. I don't know that anything will ever be normal again, except that we need to remember that for most of church history, what we enjoy week in and week out has never been normal. Without persecution, without people looking over the shoulders of people with the threat of life and even torture. Whatever the new normal is, I'm really glad to be able to face it with you and with each other. So, unity amidst diversity, a post-pandemic reset. This is going to feel much more like a discussion, I think, than a sermon. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said, preaching, expository preaching, is really just public counseling, group counseling. And I certainly feel that way this morning with myself sitting in the front seat. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul writing, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. As we've been saying all morning, this is a day that we've been looking forward to for almost three months. This is week 11 since we've met together again. After 10 weeks of being shut down, locked down, stay at home, Even not gathering as a church body and a church family, we are finally able to look each other in eyes. No, we're not all together. We're in multiple meetings, and there are those who still are not able to meet. We've encouraged them not to meet with us yet, who are physically uh, challenged with some uh, some, uh, physical, they call them comorbidities. What a a terrible thing to call people. Uh, Things of which we're all going to die of someday. But there are things that challenge people being here, and we need to remember that they are here. We are very well. It just feels natural to be looking at the camera again for some reason. Uh, We know you're there. There are others who are not here because they're frightened, and that's okay. There will be a time when that is resolved. Over the past few months, we as leaders in this church and those around the world in all churches have faced decisions about church that we never thought we would entertain. And so have you as members and believers. However, I want to share with you, I truly believe that the most difficult decisions are still ahead of us. 
The most challenging obstacles that we face as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ at Mission Road Bible Church are not behind us, but ahead of us. A faithful reading of the New Testament shows us that the heart of church life really is a centrifuge of of pulling us all together in the orbit of interpersonal relationships and interactions. The church was not meant or designed to watch a screen. These gatherings are important. They will happen again. They cannot be stopped by any force in this world. This includes our corporate worship services, our Sunday uh, Sunday school classes, our children's programs, our care groups, our Bible studies, our counseling each other, our discipleship. We must be back together and we won't be the same until we are. The question we all face then going forward is how can we responsibly resume in-person gatherings while being careful, safe, and faithful to our biblical responsibilities and to just health concerns? Those are not conflicting right now, and by God's grace, we have not been put in a position where we've had to choose to honor the CDC's recommendations or the Lord. And I praise God for that. I'm not so bold as to say there will never come a day when we have to make that decision. But as of yet, we haven't. We're asking questions. How can we maintain the CDC's recommended six-foot physical distancing? Um, What about the number of people in a room, in the building, in a living room, in a care group, in a Sunday school class? Uh, What do we do about masks and for how long? What do we do about the nursery and children's classes and even the playground? To see little eyes peering over masks, walking by the playground with orange fencing around it going, it's it's heartbreaking. And more than all that, how do we navigate our relationships when there are strong disagreements about what we should do with all of these issues? Here's the reality. Our leadership has been talking with most of you, most of our church body, for now 11 plus weeks And we have a pretty good idea that there is a spectrum of ideas about everything related to the coronavirus, the COVID-19 crisis. This is probably best illustrated in a humorous graphic that Kat Van Ray actually sent me yesterday that I, I laughed at and then got immediately sad about because, and maybe you've seen this kind of being passed around the internet. It's a graphic, and in the center of this graphic is a circle, and it says, Pastor Connecting to this, this, this bubble in the middle are multiple bubbles that overlap with the term pastor. And those bubbles inside of those bubbles say this. One of them says, you can't open the church building yet. It's a huge health risk. The other bubble says, we need to open the church building. I need, for their, I, I need to be there to see everyone. What, all caps, what are you waiting for? There's another bubble that interacts with the pastor that says, Don't ever open the church building again. Home is so much better. Another one. My family is going to stay at home for a while before coming back. Sorry, can't be there. Another one. Here are the 25 things you need to do if you want to meet in your church building again. Another one. My wife, my husband, my dad, my grandparent, my uncle, my sister, my brother, my niece, all just passed away from COVID-19. Another one. This is all a big hoax, a conspiracy, a media frenzy. Read this article. 
This link, this video, don't be afraid. And the point is, that's a humorous depiction. But there are people in our church, maybe except the one who said my whole family has passed, who touch some or more of these bubbles in some sense. Let's just say that our leadership team has heard some version of all these, but let's think about this for a moment. There are many of you who could not be more eager to be back today and want to get things back tomorrow. Let's start everything normal tomorrow and you'd be fine with that. You would have a mask burning ceremony and you would enjoy that. For you, for those people, there's the temptation to be impatient and suspicious. There's another spectrum, though, of people who believe it's unwise to meet until there's a vaccine. And the COVID crisis has been stamped out. For this group of folks, there are temptations to be fearful and suspicious. And then there's most of us who are somewhere between those two extremes, bouncing to the poles every now and then. Let me put this into blunt perspective. Some believers contend that if you open your church, you are showing that you don't love and care for your congregation because you're possibly exposing them to a virus. Others, however, contend that if you don't open the church, you're a compromiser and a coward. By the way, I've heard both. No matter what your opinions are, what your beliefs are about the COVID-19 virus, all of us, though, have a common and more dangerous temptation. It's gaining victory over this temptation that I want us to address and talk about today. Very simply, it is the temptation to judge others who do not share our opinions and our perspectives. I'm convinced that the greatest threat to the church in this hour is the danger of disunity. I believe Satan is salivating at the opportunity to divide the church with different perspectives on how we should do what we do, and it frightens me. It can make us at odds with each other. And while it's great to get back together, if we're not careful, we can be driven apart. I hope I'm wrong, but I fear that we are entering a very fragile and polarizing time in the history of the church. This is not new. Paul addresses the exact same issue, the exact same collision of opposing opinions, opposing perspectives, opposing ideologies, opposing worldviews in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Just a little quick on-ramp to get up to Ephesians 4. Chapter 1 describes the believer as a person who has been blessed with all spiritual blessings from Christ in the heavenly places experienced now and in eternity. The Father selects us. It's all related to the Trinity. The Father selects us. The Son redeems us. The Spirit seals us. Then we come into chapter 2 and we see the reality that the believer has been saved from a horrific position of being owned by Satan and a depraved mind. This high calling of the individual then dissolves all barriers in the last part of chapter 2 that could cause any division in the church, particularly particularly between Jews and Gentiles. They could not have been more apart in how they saw the world. Then chapter 3 highlights the gospel as the grand, great, divine mystery revealed in the gospel itself in Christ. And Paul prays for believers to be unified theologically and experientially. 
That all brings us to chapter 4, where he launches into a three-chapter tour de force on this simple ideology. What? Become who you are. This is who you are in the first three chapters. Become that. Live that way. And in this practical and applicational section of the book, the first issue Paul tackles is that of believers' unity with each other. Said negatively, it's that of solving disunity and potential disunity between each other. So for our study this morning, I want us to discover together three responsibilities for maintaining unity amidst diversity. Three responsibilities. These are ours. Now this is the kind of text I understand that it's easy to listen to and think, boy, I hope so-and-so hears this. I hope they're listening to Paul. Paul has your and my heart as the target for his arrow. Let's listen for our own hearts. Three responsibilities for maintaining unity amidst diversity, which is the season that all of us are about to enter into with the ideas that we have that are so different in moving forward. The first is worthy obedience. Worthy obedience. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, urge you, exhort you, beg you, call you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The therefore refers to all that God has done for the believer in the first three chapters. I just summarized that for you a moment ago. It's ultimately that God's plan of salvation changes not only our hearts, but it changes our relationships with others so that the most diversified people can not only get along, but can demonstrate the power of God by their love for one another. Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome. He calls himself the prisoner of the Lord, and he is a prisoner indeed. He reminds readers that he's been stripped of his freedoms. Think about that. But not of his ability or his willingness to be faithful to Christ. It's an important lesson there. In a country where many believers turn the volume up as loud as possible on and about freedom, liberty, Paul's message is his loss of civic freedom, of his own liberty, has done nothing to hinder his commitment to his Lord. Think about that. Just flip on the television, maybe you shouldn't. Watch a half hour of any news network, and you will hear the the debate and the discussion largely around, this is threatening my freedom. Paul takes that out of play. He says, "I'm, I'm not free. I'm actually a prisoner in Rome of the Lord. I have no freedom. But his lack of freedom did not hinder him at all from honoring the Lord, obeying the Lord, and enjoying the Lord. Even a step further, the language Paul employs in all of his letters of, uh, of, of, of commendation and rebuke and counsel and encouragement to the churches indicates a willing submission of his freedom to Christ. If Paul had been freed up, and he was, this was the first of his second, first of two imprisonments, He was still a prisoner of the Lord, as are you and me. That's why we're called slaves and he's called master or Lord, right? 
Then there's this imagery of walk. I, the prisoner of the world of, of the Lord, encourage, admonish, rebuke, command, call you to walk in a manner. That's one of the New Testament writers' favorite words for live, live a life. Worthy of the Lord, axios. It means balancing or bringing into equilibrium with. In other words, the way we live and think and behave ought to be an adequate, a holy, and a, an accurate representation of what we believe before the Lord. Said another way, what we believe about the Bibles actually should make a difference in our lives. What we believe about the gospel. He's calling believers to live a life worthy of their calling, which is interesting because he will say later uh, to the Colossians, to live in a life worthy of the Lord, those are one and the same. Colossians 1.10. What does this mean? Uh, This is such a sweet and clear echo of of the third commandment. The third commandment is, is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, typically we say this is about cursing or, or using God's name in a swearing way. That is not what this is talking about. When it says, do not take, that word take, nasa in the Hebrew is the word wear. Do not wear the name of the Lord in a vain way. Don't say you belong to Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus and the New, don't take the name of the Lord in a way that you're not going to live like it's commensurate with the Lord. It's the same principle. So in this strange season, I think a fair question to ask is this. Do I give more attention in my conversations, in my online presence, in my social media, to scientific and political opinions, or do I give more attention to my love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, lots of, and there's a place for this later about social media. People love the debate on social media about this or that. How about the debate about whether or not Jesus is alive? He's resurrected. Your social presence signature ought to be him, not the ever-changing political, and may I say it, scientific disinformation and multiple collision of opinions. I heard doctors say something this week that regrettably made sense. He said, pretty much whatever you want to believe about this virus, you can find an expert to support it and an article to superintend it. Worthy obedience. We need to be committed to honoring the Lord above everything else, living like we belong to the Lord. There's a second responsibility for maintaining unity amidst, amidst diversity. Worthy obedience. Secondly, selfless care. And let me just tell you, this is where we're going to park our minds for most of this time. Selfless care. Verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to present to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't miss the fact that Paul's first explanation of what it means to walk in a worthy manner is be unified with one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Care for one another. 
It really is about selfless care, not personal opinion and personal promotion. He begins with a short list of what it means to exercise selfless care for and about those around us. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says nothing, nothing at all, of protecting and promoting our personal rights, our personal opinions, our personal perspectives. Instead, he focuses on, focuses on how we are to be selfless in our understanding and care for other Christians. It should surprise no one, by the way, anyone familiar with the New Testament, that he begins with the characteristic of humility. Humility. It was a man who had um, immeasurable influence on my life. He was a father figure to me in so many ways. He's now with the Lord. His name is Fred, Fred Barshaw. And I was on my first international trip with Fred, told many of you this before, and he, he, he was always and ever the teacher. And I remember him telling me, asking me one time, he says, uh, we were on a plane, one of those little jumps in Australia, and he says, Rick, I want to ask you a question. What, one question test. Okay. He was a budding theologian, a, uh, a seminary student. He says, answer this question and finish this line. We are never more like Christ than when we are blank. I said, that's easy. Good. God is good. He said, nope. Just. God is just in the judge. Nope. Merciful. I went through every possible attribute of God I could think of. Nope, 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 nope. And the more I talked, the stupider I felt and revealed myself to be. In the end, I said, Fred, I, I, I give up. What is it? And he said, we are never more like God than when we're humble. Because in, in Philippians chapter 2, the greatest manifestation of God to this world is he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave, and was crucified for us. God humbled himself in the incarnation. Wow. Paul begins with humility. It's not a surprise. The Greek word means lowliness of mind, being humble. It appears seven times in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul contrasts this humility with self-seeking and self-promotion. That's certainly the right contrast. But in 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter contrasts it with outright arrogance and pride. So what does biblical humility look like in the age of COVID-19? Can we just talk about that for a moment? Minimally, minimally, I think it means to guard ourselves from being definitive and confident about science and politics. It means embracing that we are not experts. And if I can summarize most of what I have been hearing with people who are really well-meaningly trying to help me and the elders and pastors think the way we are and the way we should and do what we need to do. It's from this standpoint of this is right, I am right, I have this article. And some may be right. They might be. It just makes it very difficult when you're trying to lead a group of of people, multiples of which have expert opinions that all contradict each other. 
So we can't make decisions based on plurality or, you know, this one's got four votes, that one's got five. We're trying to be the wisest we can and make decisions that honor the Lord and honor what our governing authorities have said to us. What makes that maddening, if I can just bleed on you for a second, is our governing authorities don't always agree, and once they do, they change the next day. Our poor friend Bob has rewritten our regathering policy four times, and that's not because he's incompetent. It's because every time we finalize something, a new standard comes out. It's been really difficult. A new timeline comes out. But part of our humility is just, let's not pretend to be experts. Even the experts disagree with one another. Just use Google and you can find that out really quick. Let me give you an example. Just in the last 10 days, week, I have been forwarded articles that tell me face masks are ultimately unnecessary for controlling the virus. I've also been sent compelling articles that say face masks are very effective and we must wear them. I do find it interesting that it's recommended but not required in public by, by the government. Was it last Monday, Bob, that uh, Prairie Village met and they, they had this very debate on recommended versus required and could not get consensus on required? It's still just recommended. Let me say it another way. I'm not here to argue, by the way, for one side or the other. In fact, our staff is erring on the side of caution and trying to, trying to be wise and exemplary, and that's not always easy. But let's think about this. Unsubstantiated and speculative expertise is far more contagious than COVID-19. Can I say that again? Unsubstantiated or I could even say non-consensus, and speculative expertise is far more contagious than the virus itself. What a testimony it would be if our church, our little corner of evangelicalism here on Mission Road, were a light of hope and the gospel more than an expertise on science and politics. What a testimony and a message to the world that our hope is based on salvation from sin more than safety from a virus. Preferring one another, deferring to one another, listening to one another is an evidence of mature, humble, and gracious faith. Be careful of believing and promoting conspiracy theories. You know, I've thought a lot about this in the last few weeks. The, the heart that believes and promotes conspiracies is a heart either of pride or fear. Pride, it just wants to say, hey, I'm in the know. It's Gnostic. I know what's really going on. There's a pride there. Or fear, oh no, everyone's out to get me. What if they are? Did you hear what we read in Psalm 56 this morning? Our hope is in God, and no man can take our surety from us. The worst thing they could do, and the worst thing the virus could do, is to be our ticket to heaven. That's not so bad. So pushing and promoting conspiracies 
attached to being in the know represents a pride that I just don't think is becoming of a Christian. A truly humble heart will resist the temptation to be a purveyor of secret conspiracies and government dark shadowing. I truly believe that a humble heart resists the temptation to forget that God is in sovereign and complete control. He is. Let's be humble. And experts in the gospel and scripture, not in science and politics. Then he says gentleness. Interesting word, gentleness. It's the idea of being gracious and kind. It's the opposite of being rough with people. It's not weakness. Jesus is said to be gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It's often translated strength under control. Controlled strength. Gentleness is, not a, a, is a not so subtle expectation not to be an ideological bully. My dad used to borrow this expression that you've heard many times, I'm sure. Keep your powder dry. Don't die on every hill. I had a a seminary professor who used to say to us all the time, gentlemen, if you die on that hill, you're dead. So there's something to that. Is this really the last argument that you want to have? Heart of gentleness does not attempt to win an argument, but to care for a brother or sister. This attitude resists the temptation to vent, to vent on anyone who would be willing to hear our frustration with anger. We're not venters. We're Christians. With patience, he says. Interestingly, this word is the opposite of the word. We think patience like i got to wait till Christmas. This word actually means don't be angry. It's akin to the Hebrew word for, for long-suffering. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words, which is, means it's spoken of God, that God is long in the nose. And the reason it's long in the nose is it's describing that when we get angry, our nose tends to shorten and our face scowls and we scrunch up. God is a long nose. That's what this is. We're patient. We're long-suffering. We're not easily angered. Greek scholar Harold Honer says this of this word, quote, The believer must stay his or her impatience or vengeance when wronged by another believer, exhibiting patience toward one another, end quote. The idea is that we will be offended by others and probably offend others as well. But the idea is that we don't respond in anger. This would have been extremely important with the Jews and Gentiles participating in the same church in Ephesus. Think about this. Just think about this. This is not, I think, the, the government's conspiracy and there's no COVID-19 and I think that it's everywhere and if I breathe, I'm going to die. This is not that debate. They had different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles. They had different worldviews. They had different beliefs. They had different religions. They had different practices. They had different food preferences. They had different political ideologies. They had definitely different theological ideas. And Paul says to these groups that really could not have been more different, Hold back your frustration and anger about the differences, and that will demonstrate genuine Christian love. There's a cavernous difference between being right and being righteous. It's possible to be right 
and to also be unrighteous. You can be really right on an issue and be really wrong in your heart, and that gets no points in heaven. Tone matters. James 1.20, you know it well, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And this discussion of patience leads naturally to the next description of a believer's commitment to unity. The phrase is showing tolerance. It's all one phrase, tolerance for one another in love. That all goes together. It simply means that the differences between believers are to be tolerated because we love one another. It doesn't mean we don't talk about them. It doesn't mean we don't debate about them. It means we do that in a way that honors them and honors the Lord. I had a man tell me one time, the best way to think about this is you have two people who disagree sitting on the same side of the table with an open Bible, not opposite side of the table playing tug-of-war with the Bible. That's a good image. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to debate. But there's a way to do that in a way that honors the Lord. We are very clearly to be tolerant toward one another because we love them. Loving tolerance attempts to understand another before concluding what you think they think. I think probably that's been... The thing I've learned most about being married for a long time, don't assume you know what your spouse thinks without asking. This goes back to that helpful phrase I learned a long time ago. It's so helpful. Will you help me understand? Instead of, that's wrong, you're wrong, here's what's right. Help me understand. Can, can we talk about this? The assumption that you or I know all that has gone into a person's position is simply arrogance. It might even betray or show an idea that we are secretly omniscient. We know what you're thinking, even if you don't. This all bakes together into the final cake of the last phrase, verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So loaded. Every word in this phrase is loaded. God is asking us, sinful human beings as we are, saved by grace, to preserve the unity, listen, generated by the Holy Spirit. This is profound. We are asked to cooperate with something the Holy Spirit is doing. What a command. What a gracious privilege in which to participate. Christ brings the bond of peace between people who have no reason to get along with each other except for Him. Yes, we can be skeptical of the claims that we hear daily. Frankly, we have every reason to be skeptical of claims because someone will undermine that or they'll change their mind tomorrow. Local, state, federal leaders have not only disagreed with each other, scientists, doctors, politicians have not only disagreed with each other, they have changed their own statements and standards week by week, day by day, sometimes morning to afternoon. And frankly, we should give them grace about that. They're getting new information. This is something we've never done before as a society or as a church. 
So let me offer a, a few suggestions to consider in the coming weeks and months as we navigate through what I think is the most dangerous time, getting back to normal. Please be careful responding to all of these inconsistencies that we see in the medical and political community by tweeting or posting in Facebook in all caps as if that really makes us convinced. Do this. Ask for clarification before drawing conclusions. You have polar opposite opinions about this whole thing. Ask for clarification. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe the person who believes that? Really, I'm going to read that. We don't have to win a debate in the moment, right? Also, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then you will be what? Slow to anger. James 1.19. Also, don't assume that you need to decide between truth and unity so fast. And what I mean by that is someone who says, this is truth and I don't care. I'm not going to sacrifice unity uh, because of truth. I'm going to stand for truth. Well, that's good and I think there's a place where we should. We don't stand with, with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons in unity because truth does matter. But when we're talking to people within our own fellowship, we need to have a degree of grace that seasons our speech with care and love. And I just have to say this. It's, it's actually a subject for a whole other sermon, but I'm just bombarded with, did you see this? Be careful and watch your heart when posting on social media. Again, it's a subject for a whole sermon, but it's a strange, strange as a pastor that I regularly get this. Did you see what so-and-so posted about said subject? Did you see his or her comment about said subject? Did you see that so-and-so requested the, this, uh, reposted this article, this video, this blog, and on and on and on? And I always say, no, I got off Facebook years ago and have never looked back. And I say, are you, are, are, are you, are you gossiping by even telling me that? And they have a point to say, well, it's not gossip if it's posted to the world. <laughs> Be careful. What are you talking about and who are you talking to when you push post? Why are you posting? And the reason I bring that up is that it breaks my heart as a shepherd to hear so many people who are so confused, frustrated, disappointed, and even embarrassed by other people who claim them to be Christians who post things on social media. Paul reiterated this whole list to the Colossians. Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness with patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you also, so should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called into one body and be thankful. He was even more, even more short to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. 
I didn't write that. Paul did. How different our world, our lives would be if we attempted to lead a quiet life attending our own business. By the way, this text in Ephesians 4 tells us what our business is, walking in a manner worthy of Christ himself. Now, I'm just going to briefly highlight this third responsibility, this third point. It's applied theology. The responsibilities that Paul outlines for maintaining unity amidst diversity, worthy obedience, selfless care for others, and thirdly, applied theology. And the reason I, I just want to be brief is this, every phrase could be a whole, not sermon, but series. This is so dense and rich with theology. But taken together, it's meant to be a staccato, rapid-fire application. There is, see if you hear a certain word repeated, one body and one spirit just as also you were called into one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who's over all and through all and in all did you hear something repeated one 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 seven times we don't have time to again to dive into each one of these although Lord willing, we will one day. Suffice it to say that these verses contain a sevenfold confession of some of the realities that ought to make us unified around the same things. Staccato, rapid fire. Two observations should catch your eye. First of all, that repeated one, word one, seven times, intended to highlight our oneness in our diverse opinions perspectives, and worldviews. This is between Jews and Gentiles. They could not have been more different. Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You, you hear that. They were different in every way. And he says, I know you're different in all these ways, but let's, let's focus on what unites us. And these are theological realities. Each of these unifying descriptors would be worthy of a deep dive for all of us. But for now, we need to notice that Paul's point is that all of these are monolithic and unified with the word one. Our theology is what pulls us back to center. Not our politics, not our scientific disagreements, not our preferences, but our theology. I wish we could go into each of those, but we can't right now. Secondly, second observation to notice is that all three members of the Trinity show up in this list. Did you see that? One Spirit, in verse 4. One Lord, Paul in the book of Ephesians, when he uses the word Lord, it's always in reference to Jesus. And one God and Father, in verse 6. What do we take away from that? Our theology proper, the way we understand and view God Almighty is the ultimate theological reset for us all. Whenever you see all three members of the Trinity referenced in a single passage, it's an exclamation point theologically. Our unity is motivated and aimed at the triune God of the scriptures and of our hearts. So just allow me a couple of comments to kind of pull this together, okay? 
This is not a spiritual spanking. This is a reminder to my own heart. The season we're entering into will be a unique opportunity for the idols of our hearts to be exposed. All of us are going to find ourselves daily battling the temptation to judge others. About face masks, about distancing, about activities, and even about what we do at church and how we do it. The temptation is going to be to judge. I know that because it's resident in my own heart. I think the Lord is testing us. This is a test for us all. This is a test for us as a church. James tells us that every trial ultimately is a test. He's perfecting our faith. He has expectations for us to honor each other and honor him, and he is wonderfully giving us the opportunity to do so. As we've been saying from the beginning of this crisis, let's be careful not to overreact or underreact to this pandemic and even its diminishing. My own heart was unexpectedly revealed this week on judging others. I'm just going to be a little bit vulnerable with you, and I'm going to confess if I can. Uh, it, it has to do with a, a project I was working on, and I don't know how to say this except to say all of my projects involve multiple trips to Home Depot, not one trip. Uh, I, I, are you laughing with me or at me? So I, I go, and I think, yeah, that's it, and then I come, I realize I need something else, and it, I, I end up going back. Well, I went early in the morning thinking it wouldn't be crowded, and it wasn't. Um, to Home Depot uh, and uh, uh, wore a face mask. Which is really hard for those of us with glasses. I I haven't figured out the trick. I've been told a hundred things to do to keep it from fogging up. It doesn't work. Well, I was walking around Home Depot with my face mask and I noticed immediately that some of the employees were wearing face masks and some of the employees weren't which meant that there obviously wasn't a requirement I also noticed that many customers were wearing face masks and many other customers were not I was wearing one I mainly felt the eyes as I was wearing a face mask of those who were not wearing a face mask look at me and I felt judged I'm speculating, which is always dangerous, but I thought they were walking by me saying, oh, you think you're better than us. You think you know more than us. Oh, you think... And I had all this, this rattling going on in my mind, which maybe none of which was true. But I felt an uneasy tension having a face mask with those who didn't. There was a disconnect. Later that day, I had to return to the Home Depot. I'm not telling you I had to go a third time, but that's for another time. But I returned to Home Depot. This time, I left my face mask in the car. Hey, I saw about half the people. They didn't wear them. I don't like face masks. Is that okay? So I walked in without my face mask and my glasses unfogged. This presented an entire other set of feelings and emotions. I felt the eyes of those with face masks judging me. 
One lady, I'm not kidding, walked by me in the aisle, turned her back to me, and slid by me with no facial... Anyway. I left Home Depot with an odd moment that I think we all have wrestled with and will at some level. It was an odd emotional level. It's so easy to judge and to feel judged. We're not going to fix that out there, but we can fix it in here. And we ought to be a light to the world on what that means. This will all be over one day. And until then, can we commit with each other not to judge each other, to listen to each other, to talk to each other, to hear each other, to care for each other, to not be judges and honor our precious Lord by walking in a manner worthy of his calling and his person, looking like those who belong to the king. David said in Psalm 133, 1, in fact, David sang in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Can we do that together? Together. 